Hi, I'm Vivi and thanks for listening to Sheer See the Podcast. Today we're talking to Kari who is an awesome person with a great story to tell and we've just had an interesting chat just now about similarities in our work which you find when you're advocating for things. So that's a really interesting space that's a bit of a scary one really but (laughs) Kari is doing amazing things in the world and I'd love to give her some space to talk about it and shine a bit of a light on some of the some of the wisdom that you hold. So thank you so much for being here and chatting to me and everyone. Thank you so much. This is awesome. It's lovely to be here. Uh, well, I guess I first came across you because you were running Slow Clothes, which is a brand. Do you want Do you want to talk about that instead of me trying to tell you what you were doing? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Well, slow clothes was, it started out as like a hobby. It was an epiphany I had that brought together, I guess, my training in public health and international development and social justice with my absolute like love of clothes and fashion. And I started it as a way to, I guess, bring ethical labels to Adelaide. So I really wanted it to be all in person initially. And then the other part of it was to educate people and sort of bring people into the fold in regards to ethical fashion. And this was about four years ago. So it was at the very start of sort of ethical fashion becoming more mainstream is the wrong word, but people becoming more aware of it. So I started by running like the equivalent of a Tupperware party where I would go to people's houses and take some of the labels that I worked with and we do like an hour or so education session on fabrics and the industry and feminism in fashion. And then they could ask any questions they had and then they could shop if they wanted to. It's like, don't worry. So it started out with like markets and these ethical fashion sort of parties. And then I moved into an online business, which is what all the like business people told me I had to do with it, which was never ever my intention, but that obviously helped it grow exponentially. And then there was a period of time, about four months, where we also had a store in the city, which was really, really lovely. For some reason, and I was talking to mum about this the other day, no one knows why, because I did not grow up in a family that liked stuff or fashion, or we were just like nature babies. But for some reason, I just always have loved working in retail. So when we had the physical space, that was probably my favourite part. The retail side of Slow Clothes, I closed about a year ago just because life was too hectic and COVID and everything else. But I'm still doing bits and pieces of the education through Instagram and I've been writing for some of the brands I used to stock, which is really beautiful. Uh, After my PhD, I'll probably move more into that, like education and writing. Um, I've done a bit of teaching in schools and talking on panels and those sorts of things. Awesome. So... I know you you helped me move in the right direction with the t-shirts for she has seen which have were have been like this disastrous thing for me like trying to find an ethical company and fair trade environmentally doing the right thing which sound, sounds like it should be simple but is far from simple and I remember I think I had a chat with you over just a message or something and you gave me the company Dorsu to check out and have a chat to but it's been a really interesting space about to dive into a little bit more and understand the ethics behind clothes and 
how here in Australia we're like we're just taking advantage of another half the other half of the world really through unfair poor working conditions and unsafe working conditions and all the things do you want to speak into that a bit instead of me like babbling yes. Absolutely. Well, I mean, Dorsey, who I put you on to, but one of the first brands I ever stopped. When I first started Slow Clothes, I learned most of my early days around ethical fashion from Peppermint magazine. So I would have probably found them in Peppermint, otherwise Instagram. And they are really, really special because the one of the founders of Dorsey used to work in essentially a sweatshop. And then I'm not sure of the full story, but went off and has branched out and started her own business, which has won all sorts of awards and is really interesting, I think, for people to see because they manufacture in the same space as their retail space or they have until now. They have had some changes during COVID. But I think they're a really beautiful example of ethical and sustainable fashion as like a business model rather than something to tack on as a social corporate responsibility. So they're an amazing organisation. I'm so glad you've been out of work with them because they're just also stellar people. Yeah, it's interesting in Australia, you know, we were talking about the cost of your T-shirts and things like that. And Dorsu is definitely one of the most affordable, truly ethical brands, like, you know, ethically ground up driven. And they're one of the most affordable and people still have issues with the price because I guess over the last sort of 60, 70 years since manufacturing moved offshore from countries like America and Australia where we used to have all of those skills in our own countries. We moved them offshore and manufacturing became cheaper and so people got used to cheaper clothes so they were able to buy more clothes. So that sort of fueled this cycle of clothes becoming cheaper and people uh, attributing less value to their clothes and then with like free trade agreements and tax, you know, breaks and sort of international politics, it got cheaper and cheaper. And what we see is uh, companies move their factories out of a, out of a country when its minimum wage increases and go to a cheaper place. So I don't know if this is still the case, but a couple of years ago I remember hearing that Ethiopia was where all the big companies were moving their manufacturing because they had the lowest minimum wage in the world. So it's really hard for, like, nations and, and, and leaders in those countries too to do the right thing by their people when, they know if they implement like a higher minimum wage or stricter conditions on factories, the factories just move somewhere that doesn't have those conditions. So it's this very global system. And what it's meant is that people in countries like Australia have got really used to being able to afford heaps and heaps of clothing. And so when they see more ethically made clothes, which are more expensive to produce because people are paid properly, the materials are more sustainable, which costs more to develop, they think they're expensive, but actually that's how much clothing is worth. It's just that we've got used to undervaluing clothing. So the only way clothing can be super cheap is if people aren't getting paid right and if corners are being cut in terms of like environmental protections, like irrigational waste disposal. For example, there's this amazing doco called River Blue where they sort of follow the waste of rivers in a couple of countries in Asia to these factories because they're not treating their chemical waste. It's just getting pumped into rivers. So it's this sort of corner cutting that saves money and that's what makes your clothes so cheap. So when people, I guess, it was really hard for me because I'm, I'm quite a socially anxious person. It was really hard being at markets where I was selling these amazing independent ethical labels and they were really gold standard. They were really doing the right thing. And I would get really rude <laughs> 
responses from people just going, this is ridiculous. You know, the T-shirt was $60 or the dress was $200. And the interesting thing about that sort of response is people are really willing to go out and spend that amount of money on something if it's from a, a brand with like a known name. And often the yep. comment of the company that this is a ridiculous price was it's not even a brand name. And what I really wanted to say is like a lot of those big brands are, are just charging you for a name and even like and not paying their workers. So you might pay $200 for a T-shirt from one of these companies, but none of that money is going to their workers. It's all going in their pockets. So I think people's understanding of value and worth and quality has really become warped over the last 60, 70 years. And which, what we're trying to do is shift people back to when, you know, clothing was made on shore. It was often customised. It cost a lot more. People mended it and kept it for a really long time. And that's really what a sustainable model is. And that's what we're almost trying to shift back. But when people and companies and are spending billions of dollars on teaching us that that's not what we should be wanting, it's really hard for small brands and advocates to push back against that. Yeah. Our society's geared up in some interesting ways, I think. Even right here, there's people in our in our own communities being treated poorly as a result of decisions that we're all making as consumers every day. I think that's another thing like that people don't realise is that just because something's made in Australia, it doesn't mean it's ethical either or sustainable, particularly. And I like to separate those concepts out, even though, you know, there is a huge amount of crossover. But the made in Australia you know, people assume if it's made here, it's made ethically, but that's not the case either. So what you're doing, you're, you're doing P, your PhD in abortion rights. Is that correct? Is that? Yeah, correct? in abortion stigma. Yeah, abortion and stigma. And I work, I also work for an incredible organisation uh, in Queensland called Children by Choice, which is in a very similar, in a very similar area of reproductive rights, um, moving to reproductive justice. So most of my week is spent doing that now and the slow fashion is sort of my, has come back to be my night job, I guess. It sounds dodgy when I say, and then at night. I <laughs> no, that doesn't sound dodgy. That, like, <laughs> boundaries, boundaries. With the <laughs> <laughs> so what got you into that? Are you happy to speak into that and what? Yeah. It's interesting because I, um, I write for, I've just started writing some articles for a Little Tender, which is one of the most beautiful labels out of Queensland. And they asked me to write the first article on, like, myself, and it was really hard because <laughs> no one wants to write a thousand words about themselves. Like, it's just awkward. But it, it made me reflect, and I actually had to sit with mum to try and work out how to tell the story of the pieces of me because my path has seemed so wonky to so many people. I started out, you know, in a very environmentalist family, and, you know, I was going to be a zoologist, and then I moved into... Um, medical anthropology uh, and international development and then slow fashion and then and then reproductive rights and to some people they seem really disconnected but to me it's all the same thing it's about justice and it's about equity so like I think I just always want to help and you know this can sound really white savior sort of mentality so it's, it's hard to frame it but I just always wanted to support people without a voice to have more of a voice and, and you know, that's been my driving force. And at the start, it definitely was, you know, white saving mentality when I was, you know, in my late teens and early 20s before I'd ever heard that term. <laughs> and I've, and I've learned a lot since then. Oh, that's how you know you're working in the feminine, feminine yeah. space. 
to even know what the white saviour thing is. Yeah, like, you know, all the things you're doing wrong, <laughs> all the things you suck at, like, you you know, how racist you are. <laughs> you are learning all of these things. But so, yeah, I guess I was working in, I got my, so I was, I studied a Master of Health and International Development. And prior to that, I had done some volunteer work in the Dominican Republic with a little sort of educational organisation. And they were saying what we really need here is a women's health clinic in this town. There's no women's health clinic. And, you know, at the time I was like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll just go like study and I'll come back and open a women's health clinic because, you know, that's how naive I was. But anyway, I came back and did this master in sort of international public health. And through that, because I had this women's health clinic in my head, I just started taking all of the topics around, you know, women's, women's and children's health and then moved into reproductive health. And I then got this dream position with the United Nations Population Fund, who are responsible for all things family planning, essentially, for the UN. And I did that for a year, which was just incredible. We were working on HIV policy and programs with female sex workers in Asia and the Pacific. And then I came back to Australia and to Adelaide, to get married to my husband. I met him really inconveniently just before I won my dream job at the UN. So, you know, came back for love, couldn't find any work in reproductive health, and that's all I wanted to do. But because I'm not a doctor, I don't have any, you know, actual practical skills in that in that space. So I'm good at like research and policy. So then I started a PhD because really it was the only way for me to be working on the topics I really wanted to be working on. And never went into it with a plan of researching abortion stigma, but as you do at the start of a PhD, you do a lot of reading and try and find the research gaps. And, you know, within the first year, it was really clear to me that there was no research in Australia almost on abortion stigma, but that the impacts of stigma are actually really bad and the impacts of thinking there's stigma and thinking you're going to get negative treatment, just that perception is what can be really, really harmful. So, yeah, I moved into that space and then I guess the point of doing my PhD was to get a job in reproductive health. And so I have been, I mean, I am in my seventh year, so this is, you know, a long journey because I have a, had a baby in the middle and then won a job with Children by Choice just over a year ago, which is working in also abortion rights and reproductive rights research. So it's been this amazing journey, but reproductive rights, social justice, environmental justice, you can't separate it. I was just writing a piece last week on climate change and reproductive access and access to abortion in Queensland. You, you know, it's all, it's all one. And so this really wonky journey of mine has meant that I have, I think, this really nice, broad understanding of how all these things interact. Yeah. Yes. Awesome. That's amazing. And, I've, and seven years, I'm like everyone that I know that's doing PhDs, they, they're out of control how long they take. <laughs> I think like, if you go through like the undergrad, you do your undergrad straight out of uni, straight into honours, and then, you know, go into your PhD and you're like 24 or 25, you can smash it out. But otherwise, anyone who comes into it, you know, a bit, a little bit later in life, it does seem to drag out. And I remember when I started, one of my supervisors said, so, you know, you should know that life will happen when you're doing a PhD and if it goes longer than three years. And I was like, oh, no, not me. You know, I'm going to smash this out three years. And here I am <laughs> in year seven. <laughs> I know. Oh, yeah. All my friends doing PhDs is a good way to put me off ever trying to do a PhD. <laughs> yeah, look, I don't know why I'm doing it at this point, except that I've gone so far along that I'm going to finish it. But, you know, I am really lucky. And because I I do have this really, like, intangible skill set, I guess, that, you know, it's not, I'm not a midwife, I'm not a doctor, 
the best way for me to be helpful is to become, I think, <laughs> is to become, you know, really, really knowledgeable in one specific area so I can be supporting other people with, yeah. with that area. So that's been my path. Mm. Yep. Amazing. It's good. It's, yeah, it's good and it's important. And the, yeah, it's really important work. And I know that that will speak to lots of people because it's such an unseen space as well. And a, and it can be unacknowledged and people carry in, me, immense shame. I know interviews that I do with women all the, like, all the, quite often it will come up and I won't include it in the interviews because, mm because there's so much shame attached and people like I can interview women in their seventies who are carrying shame about mm. having an abortion or. Yeah. I yeah. spoke to an elderly woman recently who I knew had a really difficult abortion story, um, but I didn't know any details. And I said, would you be willing to talk me, talk to me about your story? I want to write a book on uh, abortion over the generations. You know, when I finished my PhD, she said, absolutely not. I can't talk about that. Like it's not something I can ever go to in my mind again and yeah that was 50, probably 50 years ago 60 years ago I don't know so you know it's interesting statistically statistically stigma and and then the shame that comes with that and the anticipating you know mis- mistreatment and judgment and exclusion is determines sort of poor outcomes and poor coping and, and, you know, mental health issues and things after an abortion, more so than the abortion, which doesn't itself, the abortion in itself doesn't, isn't likely to cause negative outcomes. It's actually all of the context and the shame and stigma surrounding the abortion that leads to these really difficult experiences for people because they can't get the support they need. They're made to feel irresponsible. They're, they're made to feel like it's their fault, like they've done something wrong, but it's not the abortion itself. It's actually the social conversations around that. And then how law and policy and the health system reflects that and perpetuates it even further. I've had two abortions. You can absolutely include that. You know, they were both pretty easy decisions in quite different stages of life. But I know people, for example, that have had three and the first two have been really, really easy. And then the third one's been a completely different experience because of the context and the circumstances yep. surrounding it. So there's the, you know, we need to recognise that. I guess I'm, I'm, this is just me being my PhD advocate now, but that it's, you know, it's stigma that is so problematic about this. It's shame and it's secrecy and not that it should be on any per, any abortion seeker to talk about their abortion in order to combat stigma. It is not on them. It is not their job. It's structural. It's on it's on laws and policies and health system designed to do that job. It's not on individual abortion seekers at all. Um, but, yeah, it's a really difficult space. And one of the beautiful things, I guess, about researching it has been that I've been talking with a lot of young people who have, you know, some have just gone, ah, oh, I don't have any stigma at all. Like I grew up on Instagram watching Summertime Ford and I just know that abortion is totally normal, uh, which is, oh, it's it's like a relief to see that that's coming through in some people. But then in the same generations, a lot of people have had really opposite experiences. But a lot of people, when they talk about their abortion with someone else, even if, you know, I am the first person they've talked to, I'm a researcher, I'm external to them. So there's no social risk if of disapproval from me, um, yeah. like it won't affect their life in any way. So it's almost a really, really safe space. The connection that people build from sharing their stories, because then they realise that like one in three women in their lives, often more, uh, have had abortions. 
And all of a sudden, these amazing connections are made and all of that shame and stigma can melt away. So there's this beautiful opportunity for connection around reproductive health and reproductive rights. And it's almost, it almost sort of reminds me of, of women's business in a way. And, and look, we're really moving away in the space of talking about women because not all people who seek abortions are women, but in the way that it's this really beautiful shared experience that can heal when women and abortion seekers, you know, come together and share. And yeah, it's, it's a really interesting journey to go on. And it's, and it's really quite beautiful. Ethics committees get really scared when you're doing this research. They think there's risks and then you do the work and you realize instead of it being risky for people emotionally, it's healing. And that's not like an academic thing. <laughs> I can't prove that. Uh, it's, it's just my experience of doing this work. So when I got the job with children by choice, it was one of the most healing experiences of my life. Like I've been working on my own for you know, five, six years in this space and then moving into an organisation where everyone is on the same page and is advocating for the same things and you don't have to go back to justifying your work and why you're doing your work every single day to a new person. It's this incredibly beautiful healing experience and being able to help people through to access an abortion or to manage their experiences and reactions post-abortion Oh, it's such good work. Look, I honestly think one of the reasons I probably settled on researching abortion was because it was taboo and because other people didn't want to do that work. Like I have always been someone who's liked to do the, you know, the part of go on the path less trodden. So, you know, in a way that was probably one of my driving factors. You know, I'm a bit of a disruptor. I'm a bit of a troublemaker in a way. But now I find that the work's not about that at all. I mean, there's a lot of disruption in abortion advocacy, of course, but a lot of it's just around connection. Yeah, yeah, and I and I know lots of people will, yeah, listening to this will relate. And when, if you do start, when you do do that book, um, let me know because I know women in their 60s and 70s who will talk to you. Mm. Yeah, and um, some of the story, and I think it's important we 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 know and we tell those stories and we record those stories because what happens i think is you get born the younger generation gets born into a society where they have like certain rights and they don't realize that those rights aren't going to they weren't there before and they won't necessarily be there after and i think at the moment we're seeing that where like we're having an erosion of but in so many cultures and, and communities until like the 1900s there were no restrictions on abortion it was a normal part of traditional birth attendants work a normal part of healers work in so many cultures it was never politicized and it was never restricted like it's a really new concept and people just yeah and I think it's good if we tell the stories of the people who have experienced these really difficult journeys to an abortion uh, so that we know why we still have to keep fighting for access today yeah Mm. awesome Thank you. I feel like this was such a turned into such a rounded conversation that we covered so many things. I was just thinking that when you were talking that you feel like you're a bit of a disruptor and just oh, I can't even talk. Um, <laughs> but like it's like your like your path is to I don't know. It's an interesting persona almost because I can relate to what yeah. you're saying. Like that you that we're this anxiety driven beings that can't really handle the um. The feedback from no. <laughs> Katie for change. <laughs> but, oh, I know. And I so I, I, 
Yeah, and I really want to be doing this work. And, you know, I'd love to go into politics one day, but I just don't think I could. I, I don't think I physically and emotionally could do it until, you know, something changes in me and my, and, and my life and my well-being. But, yeah, I love the role of disrupting, but I, I just want to shake things up and then other people can deal with that. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> you disrupt and then your person, you personally cop it and it makes it hard. But, um, you know, I, I'm, I, yeah. oh, I can't, I won't stop doing the, any of the work. It might just change in how public it is or, you know, and yeah. as a researcher, I can, I can sit back and, and I guess I'm supported by academic method in a way, you know, I, I can, I'm peer, my work is peer reviewed before it's published, but, you know, it's, goes through so much rigor and ethics committees that, you know, things I say if I need to, I don't have to go out and be on Instagram and I don't have to be publicly talking. Yeah. I can use just research to do that advocacy, which is kind of why I also love being a researcher. You can choose whether to keep it, you know, keep it in that more supported space or whether you want to move into more of like a public spokesperson kind of stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Danger zone. <laughs> yeah. Danger zone. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, well. <laughs> Thank you so much for chatting to me about all of this. Um, I really, really appreciate it. And if people want to follow what you're doing on the organize, organisations that you're connected to and mm. all of that sort of thing, how can they find you? But if people want to find me, I'm slow.clothes on Instagram, uh, and that's where I am usually. I am going to be joining Sunroom. Uh, which is really exciting. It's a new app and I'm not a technology oh. person, but it's it's kind of somewhere I think in between like Instagram and Patreon. So, you know, people oh. can subscribe to you for small fees and it's kind of in that way because people are subscribing to follow an account with a very, you know, small investment, that can be really, really low. It just makes it a slightly safer space to, to share about things because it's not oh. just going to everyone. So I think what I'm planning to do is move a lot of my reproductive rights conversations, feminism conversations. You know, some of that more complex, juicy content that is also more risky for me yes. uh, emotionally to share on, on platforms like Instagram over to Sunroom. So I'll let you know when that happens and what the account is called and how to find me and all those sorts of things. And the organisation I work for is Children by Choice. They're on all of the different social media platforms. We launched a new website this week. The services we provide in terms of like support to um, abortion seekers is are Queensland based, but we also do a lot of professional development nationally. So you can find Children by Choice online. Awesome. But you know, you should know I'm not here talking on behalf of Children by Choice. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> I'm doing this. So I'm not a spokesperson for them in any way. I'm just here as myself. No, all good. And I think, I think people will really want to look, check out a few elements of what you've spoken about today. So um, I'm quite curious to look up Sunroom. I'm like, it sounds so nice. <laughs> Thank you so much for chatting. I really, really appreciate it. It's been lovely. It's, it's been so circular and it's going many directions, but um, that's life, isn't it? I like, I think it's an authentic reflection <laughs> of life. So it's been beautiful. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Shears Seen the Podcast. I would love it if you could subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating or review to help us grow this wonderful community, which you're welcome to join and be part of in whatever way works for you. You can connect with us more on the socials or online at She Is Seen Movement. We would love to hear from you, so reach out, get involved and help us shift shame by sharing stories. Thank you for being here and showing up. 
This is your weekly reminder that you are enough exactly as you are in this moment. And actually, you're kind of amazing. So thank you, and we'll talk to you soon.